about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den." Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continuously, 
been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Our second reading comes from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through to 18. And that's on page 982 of the Bibles and in the large print, 1730. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. You must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteousness, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer from what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but you, but made alive in the spirit. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, great to church with you tonight, particularly as we look into this most interesting passage. If you're new to church, if you know nothing about the Bible, or if you've seen nothing of Daniel before, welcome especially. Um, I hope tonight you find it accessible, that you might see Jesus afresh tonight. Indeed, I hope we all see Jesus afresh tonight. Let me ask a question that I don't mean to kind of load with guilt, but it'll sort of happen anyway. Are you a person of integrity? (laughs) I ask it because integrity is a word that really sings out from this passage to me. 
Uh, and it's going to be our thread that we're going to follow through this passage all the way to the gospel. Are you a person of integrity? Uh, this week, with the backdrop of a lot of public debate in various spheres, and especially in church life, uh, Michael Jensen wrote, who's a pastor just uh, down the road from us at Darling Point, wrote this piece in the Telegraph, page 70, so you totally might have missed it. Um, he wrote this, differing opinion, it doesn't mean they're evil. He's really helping us think about what it is to debate ideas in 2019, because we're kind of messing it up, I think. So he thinks as well. He notes there was a time when you could see a person's words and you could see that person's actions and you could see that they kind of matched and that they were someone you could listen to, someone worthy listening to. Instead, we kind of sling opinions over Facebook where we're detached from our personage and just kind of, you know, angry face emoji, capitalized opinions. It just gets really messy really quickly. He says, we've confused having the right ideas with having the right virtues. I wonder if virtues is even part of our vocabulary anymore. What he's describing is twofold. The current landscape is not only full of two-faced social media episodes, but it's kind of this strange landscape of what ethicists would call emotivism. That is kind of the way we do ethical, moral work now is rooted largely in our emotions, not necessarily in kind of well-formed convictions. And we see that kind of when we use the word, I'm disgusted in you for what you've done. Or that's implied in all kinds of passive-aggressive ways. So that sharing opinions is now something like a war of entrenched enemies rather than a humble pursuit of something that's bigger than what's in my head and in my heart. It means what reigns is a strange conformity, fear, confusion, exhaustion. After all, the strongest and most emotive voice wins, right? Internally is a, is a war of doubt, frustration, stress. Are you feeling this? Is this kind of your 2019? Jensen argues at the end, good character trumps correct opinion. You might not agree with that. But do we not crave to be and to look up to people of integrity, people that are worth listening to, people that kind of cut through all the drama and live, live lives of integrity? As we look to Daniel, we see the most incredible example of integrity, not simply sort of honesty, but wholeness, constancy, consistency. What we need in 2019 is a Daniel, a whole bunch of Daniels, lots of them, a strange kind of calm presence, a non-anxious, a faithful presence in the middle of the whirlwind. And this passage is simply remarkable as moral narrative. And I want to get a far away from kind of the felt board, kind of, you know, happy Daniel in kind of the, the lion's den with happy smiley lions. We need to get away from that uh, and sort of simplistic narratives and really tap the profound nature of what's happening in this. Because this is indeed a profound narrative. And to tease out what integrity looks like under pressure, we get to explore Daniel's life as we look at our own formation and our own integrity. Let me, let me pray this in as we start. Our Father, would you quieten our hearts? Would you help us escape the whirlwind that we find ourselves in? That we might see with clarity who you are and what you've done to us and for us. And would you help me to speak clearly that I might not get in the way of your powerful words tonight? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now we're at the final chapter in the narrative of Daniel. So we're halfway through the book of Daniel, but it's remember if you're right back from the beginning, uh, we did that overview where half of Daniel is narrative and the other half is kind of apocalyptic and vision, and it's going to get a little weirder next week. Uh, but this is the end of the narrative version or narrative section of Daniel. And at the beginning, we had kind of young Daniel, uh, and he was plucked out of, of Israel and brought into a foreign land. And he was kind of indoctrinated to be kind of the rising star under a new empire that he was unfamiliar with as a foreigner. And with great wisdom and fortitude and faith, he was able to navigate the complexities of this foreign space and become a rising star in their leadership. And since, since then, that young Daniel moment, he's now old Daniel. And he's still as faithful and steadfast and as wise as ever. He, he must be 80 years old now. And, and he's sort of served under King Nebuchadnezzar, foreign king number one, then Belshazzar, who kind of didn't have it all together. And, and then when Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians, we now kind of introduced to Darius, who's kind of the big dog in town. Uh, just at the end, that last verse of the last chapter, we introduced to Darius, who oversees the kingdom. And now we are introduced to three characters, including Darius, Daniel, and the satraps. We might just amalgamate them into one character. And, and they are really different. So we've got Darius, who's this powerful figure, but he's aloof. He's easily manipulated, perhaps out of his own fear for his own power, but we're not told. He just certainly doesn't look like he has the integrity or steadiness of Daniel. We've got the satraps, or the regional governors of the land, and they're conniving. They're driven by jealousy. They are lustful for power. And then we've got Daniel, faithful, humble, and a man of integrity. So there's a wholeness to Daniel that we're going to have to keep unpacking. He's kind of the whole package deal. Earlier on in the narrative, he's described as someone who has distinguished himself. Someone who has not just character, but competency. So that when people look on at his life and the decades he's been in service, they're like, he's a good bloke. He's worthy of trusting, and he really gets the job done. And the root of that, we're told, is his exceptional qualities, or more literally, his exceptional spirit. And I think that's kind of tapping, helping us tap into the root of integrity because within him, he has this remarkable inner life that is thoroughly connected to his outer life. He has this consistency and constancy, this, this wholeness. He's a whole package of the inner life overflowing into service in the outer life as he serves those around him. So we've got the powerfully aloof, we've got the conniving, and we've got a man of integrity. Sounds like the beginnings of a good story, right? And a good story it is. The story really kicks into gear when the predicament's set. So Daniel is so distinguished that Darius plans to give him the keys to the kingdom, as it were. This foreign exile is now so trustworthy and capable that he's risen to the very top of the ranks, and his peers are not super excited about that. They're jealous. The satraps, they turn conspirators, powered by jealousy, to seize what Daniel has and what they want. But jealousy, we've all felt it, is really just a big bucket term for, for really deep drivers like Fear, insecurity, lust for power, resentment. These have little to do with integrity, and they're really set up as characters that are so different to Daniel to give us a relief to actually how amazing Daniel's integrity is. So the narrative set up this force of power-hungry leaders against a single man of godly integrity. And the thing is, they couldn't find any dirt on him. As they try and undo his campaign, not that he was even campaigning for it, but as they try and undo this distinguished character, they couldn't find any dirt. That would have been really frustrating, I'm sure, for them. 
but they go then to the source of Daniel's integrity. See, Daniel's inner convictions have been on display for many years and with incredible constancy and consistency. He's a remarkable picture of integrity. Now, anyone can chip away at kind of, you know, maybe pick up a self-help book on, on how to be a person of great integrity, how to walk your talk, all that kind of stuff. But Daniel's gone next level on that because it's not about just his virtue. What he's living out is, is his faith, his inner conviction about his life and the world he lives in as he serves God above all things. That's the kind of conviction that he is putting on display year after year. And that's when the conspirators say, let's go for his faith. And we get to see, as Peter writes in our second reading, even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And so we're going to see injustice unfold as Daniel continues to live out his faith while people persecute him, while people conspire against him. So the jealous satraps start attacking the source of his inner conviction and they seek a strange ruling from Darius. They say, Darius, we've all gathered and we're all united on this and we want you to set up a decree that means people can no longer pray to any other human being, any other God, just to you. (laughs) That's a strange thing to ask. Strange because the Medes and the Persians weren't usually into uh, divinizing or praying to their leaders, but also strange is the massive overreach. And why did Darius agree to that? Except for perhaps because he's so lustful for power as this united front appears before him to say, we've all agreed you should do this. Right in front of him are his followers, is where his power resides. And so what choice does he have but to say, sounds good to me. And so he puts a decree in writing. And when Daniel hears about this, he becomes very nervous and assumes the fetal position in the corner of his room. No, he doesn't. He doesn't do anything like that. Daniel just keeps on keeping on. He does what he's always done. That is, he pleads his case to the greatest authority in the land. Three times a day, he goes to his window, overlooking Jerusalem, gets on his knees and prays. He prays. And the feature of his regular prayer was to sit in the window and to overlook all that is God's and to bring all of that and all of himself into the presence of God and to pray it in, to ask God for help and to thank God for all that he's done for him. That is the source of Daniel's integrity. There's no act of arrogant showcasing, sort of parading his prayers in the window. Jesus speaks quite harshly to the hypocrites who would parade parade their prayers like that. No, this this is now not an act of consistency, not just an act of integrity. This is now a revolutionary act of trusting in God above all things, of not fearing the king, and of doing and doing what he's always done to bring everything he has into the presence of God as he prays. And this is the key to Daniel's character. The place where he brings the pressures of his world, all that would tear him apart, his frustration, even sin, into the presence of God. And we're going to return back to this as we examine our own hearts, but the narrative keeps moving because, unsurprisingly, his conspirators are under the window. There he is, I knew he'd do it. He's so consistent, such a man of integrity. 
And so they go to the king and they say, oh, great king, Daniel's paying no attention to you. He's, he's praying again. And the satraps are licking their lips as their angsty plan unfolds. Darius, we're told, responds with great distress. Do you see what's happening here? All around Daniel is all this emotion, this angst, this jealousy, this distress. And there's Daniel in the window, calmly, praying to God. Darius's distress is interesting. I think this is a distress of a totally disintegrated self, the complete opposite of integrity. See, his love for Daniel, and maybe even just Daniel's outputs, has now been exposed at war with his love for power. The foolishness of his edict now forces his own hand to strike down one of his loves, and he has no idea what to do. He is a man without conviction, and he's totally disintegrated. As he throws Daniel into the lion's den, he offers this incredible sentiment. He says, may the God whom you serve continually save you. (laughs) What's that about? I wonder, is there another jealousy on display here? He might as well have said, I envy the source of your integrity. That you would die, that you would be calm in the midst of this because of your faith. Because of the God you continually serve. I wish I had that. I just wonder if that was what happening in Darius's heart. He's certainly quite anxious, a sleepless night, full of anxiety. He gets to the den at the first light and again blurts out this incredible statement. Daniel, he cries, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to save you from the lions? He recognizes that Daniel serves not a dead God, but a living God. He's even putting God to the test at this point, I think. You, the living God, whom Daniel serves, have you kept David, uh, Daniel from uh, certain death? He even emphasizes Daniel's living faith, as it were, his continual serving of this living God. Well, Daniel is indeed alive. Daniel has been vindicated. The living God has been vindicated. And as marvelous as that is, Daniel's integrity just keeps getting deeper. Because Daniel's opening words to those who persecute him is incredible. He says, you spineless jerk, how could you? No, he doesn't say that. He says, may the king live forever. Where are the source of those words? After spending a night in the den with lions, sentenced to death basically, he says, may the king live forever. He would have been right to say, you spineless jerk. But that would have been out of character for Daniel. And it's been his character that's been on display for decades. Here is a servant in a world without integrity, who is not anxious, who is not resentful, operating on a totally different playbook. He is so fully engaged in the world that he's distinguished. He's known for his servant heart, for his capabilities, for his love even but he's not subject to the world and its approval. That's incredible. He doesn't take the Benedict option to exclude himself from the world so that they wouldn't taint his integrity. No, with full integrity, he fully engages the world. But as much as of a big deal I've been making out of Daniel's integrity, this narrative doesn't finish with, isn't Daniel amazing? Be like Daniel. All the glory goes to God. So that Daniel can say, it's God who saved me. I was seen to be right in his eyes. 
And so that even Darius, this kind of strange, aloof king, who I kind of, I can't make out whether these words, these next words come from his heart or just out of sheer observation of what's unfolded, blurts out, freely issuing without force, this praise to God. He says, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Straight from the mouth of Darius the Mede. Are we not left with a craving to be more like Daniel? This calm, faithful presence, engaged in the world but not made anxious by it. But his example, it's, it's so incredible, it feels otherworldly. Like, do you know anyone like this guy? I was at a party last weekend. It was Tilly's first puppy party. Uh, so there's all these puppies. There's a kind of cake made of dog food. And as we're having a beer and just watching the dogs kind of do whatever dogs do, it gets to kind of like, so what do you do for work, Mike? And this is in the middle of the Anglican church being all over the media, particularly in the inner west, uh, with all its angry face emojis and people's capitalized opinions. And I'm not feeling like Daniel in that moment. I'm kind of feel like, is this really the conversation we're going to have? There are so many things that war against our sense of integrity. Being ashamed for your inner convictions, one. Or maybe a desire to please people, seeking their approval over being consistent in your character. Or maybe even our speed. I was chatting with some friends recently about a personality test called Enneagram. I don't know if any of you have done it before. I didn't pay the 12 bucks. I just read the profiles. That that sounds like me. Um, Apparently, I'm an achiever type. um, And it says, willing to cut corners to produce outcomes. That's not integrity either. I didn't even pay the $12. I just cut the corner and did Anyway. <laughs> but it's even bigger than just trying to find integrity within ourselves. Like as much as we struggle with integrity just within ourselves, virtue, integrity is not a virtue in a vacuum. I was reading a book by a kind of um, a leadership and kind of Christian thinker, Henry Cloud. He wrote a book called Integrity. Now it's more leadership than gospel. But he put me onto this interesting idea of kind of, of, of structural integrity. Uh, he gives the example of uh, aircraft, and I used to be an engineer in the aircraft world, and so I couldn't help but sort of take note. And I can't help but think of Chuck Yeager, who in 1947 flew a, uh, an amazing plane, love it, Bacala, you're on it, the X-1, more jet than plane, and he was the first test pilot to make it through the sound barrier. Several test pilots and planes before him approached the sound barrier, and under extreme pressure, those planes and their structural integrity uh, was destroyed. Chuck Yeager uh, punches through Mach 1 while his plane is violently shaking until finally he pops out the other side and in his own words, it was an anticlimax like poking through jelly. Now, when you're flying a plane at Mach 1, you want to be very confident that your plane has good structural integrity because integrity is about meeting the demands of the reality around you. It's no good just having a plane if it stays on the ground. It must meet the demands, particularly the X1, the incredible demands that it's put to. Now, Daniel's reality was very pressing. Jesus' reality was very pressing, far more than my puppy party. And when you think about structural integrity, you ask the question, not just am I matching my inside and my outside, but you're saying, actually, am I up to meeting the pressures of the world around me? How's your integrity? Where is it threatened? 
If today's heroic narrative is all about just be more like Daniel, then we're just left in his wake. We're crushed. We're suffering kind of all kinds of feelings similar to Daniel 6, but we can't live up to Daniel. But as I said, the key into Daniel's character, the key into Daniel's integrity, is his prayer life. And now you're double crushed, right? Because you can't be like Daniel, and your prayer life, you may be feeling guilty about that as well. Except when I think of prayer, I think of Jesus' prayer. And that night before he died for us, as he prayed in the garden, that he might endure the shame, the wrath for us. But I particularly think of his disciples, who had been following Jesus all along with all their messiness. And Jesus said, can you stay awake and encourage me as I pray to the Father? And he comes back and they're asleep. (laughs) He says, come on, stay awake and encourage me. I'm paraphrasing. And they fall asleep again. That's me. That's us. We are messy. We are broken. We are not people of integrity. And I think that's the way into this story truly. But as we look to Daniel and as we look to Jesus, we see how disintegrated we are. We see how our sinfulness is actually tearing us apart. How we want to be king. How we want to do things our way. We are stressed for the outcomes that we want, not the outcomes that God wants. We are too often weak bystanders to a larger story. And while Peter denied Christ and the other disciples either fell asleep or hid in fear, Jesus invites us. Our messy, complete disintegrated selves into the presence of God to pray. He invites us to be washed in his blood, to be forgiven and to bring our whole messy selves and to be put back together. He invites us into prayer. He invites us to bring our innermost being into the presence of the Father. 1 Peter, verse 18, puts it like this. The second Bible reading we had. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous, us, to bring you to God. Not your good, sorted out life self, your disintegrated, your sinful, your broken self to God. I'm being coached at the moment to think about leadership, discipleship. And in that conversation, I was sharing something that was happening around me. And uh, I wanted wanted him to kind of say, oh, Mike, you're doing a good job. Keep at it. You know, the other stuff, you know, don't worry about that. I wanted to say things like, um, you know, uh, how can you rise above this? How can you kind of put into practice good virtues? How can you rest on kind of the good work you've done before? Instead, my coach said this and really cuts to the heart of what gospel integrity looks like. He said this, he says, Mike, What do you need to repent of in this? I was kind of shocked by the question, really. But this is where prayer is key. To enter into the Father's presence as you are, all broken and sinful, and to say, sorry. To say, sorry that I am tearing myself apart. To say, sorry for the ways that my desires to achieve shortcuts your kingship, your outcomes, your glory. It's trying to make me look big. And to say thank you for the blood of Jesus that makes me whole again. 
Jesus is the bedrock of a new life of integrity for you. And having been forgiven, having our guilt removed before God, we're now invited to, in the same passage from 1 Peter, to keep a clear conscience. That is, to continue to act with integrity, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, some of you might feel like just such a complete mess that your life doesn't speak well of Christ. Some of you will feel like you've been walking as a Christian for a long time and your life's a bit messy, but you're hoping that people might see the good parts and kind of give glory to God. Or wherever you are on the spectrum, you are invited to come into the presence of God and to invite the Spirit into your life as He transforms you. That over your life, you might continue to engage in this world. That people might see the power of God in you. That they might see an integrity that doesn't come from a self-help book, hasn't come from your own virtuous kind of exercise, but comes from God. And they'll see that in your humility. They'll see that as you bring to bear your inner life in your outer life. The Spirit of God, as it were, into the practices around you. I don't know if you're feeling like a mess or whether you're feeling discouraged in this kind of, I don't know which way is up and down, kind of 2019 I don't know whether you're kind of like Kanye West and thought you were God and now have seen the truth. Whatever your story is, you are invited into the presence of God that He might make you whole. As we finish up and you start thinking about Monday, sorry to introduce that word, as you think about the whirlwind, your workplace, your social groups, and even the challenges on social media, in this age of warring opinions, let us model a character that is rooted in Christ. That is rooted in something deeper than just what's disgusting and what's not. Let us model a character of integrity that is rooted in forgiveness of sins, of new life in Christ. An integrity that is deeply engaged in the world around us, in service, in love. And when threatened, not anxious, but able to suffer well because we're part of a bigger story and we're playing the longer game, the eternity game. And our vindication is not in the approval of those around us, but in the God who raised Daniel from the lion's den, who rose his son from death and who will continue to vindicate us until we are raised in fullness to see Christ face to face. Let me pray. Our Father, would you, would you press this word into our messy hearts tonight? That we would once again have confidence in life beyond ourselves. That we would see your goodness. That we would experience your forgiveness and the new life you give to us in your spirit. Father, make us whole. That our lives might sing to your glory. That people might see our lives and see you. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.